So I'm supposed to talk about equanimity. And I'm really the wrong person to talk about it. I really don't like equanimity. Um, And there's a reason that I haven't developed talks around it because um, for, oh, about 17 years, I was heavily involved in drugs and alcohol. And you know that addicts don't like equanimity. They like intensity, right? Um, so, you know, this, this sense of serenity or balance is just not on their radar. And whether it's drugs or alcohol or sex or work or I had to feel the extreme because in many ways my heart was so shut down that I couldn't really feel sort of the natural expression of the heart that we've been working on. And so I had to amp the system in order to feel anything. And it was wonderful to feel that that high, that addictive high. But it was also okay to feel, you know, totally depressed and melancholy and because it was something. But the in-between part was just not recognizable to me. So for some reason it's my karma to talk about equanimity. <laughs> and when I think about the Buddha's life, he also went to extremes. He was buffeted by these extremes as well. So he came from this opulent, luxurious life in three palaces that, that provided every desire, every need, every want that he could possibly have. And um, when he left the palaces, he went into deep asceticism all of these ascetic practices, mortification of the body, um, fasting to the extent that he was eating one grain of rice a day. And there are statues of of him in which the uh, the skin of his abdomen is touching his backbone. And so he realized that neither extreme was the path towards liberation or freedom. And every time we come into retreat, we follow the Buddha's footsteps to the Bodhi tree, into the exploration of what is it that is really going to bring us to freedom. So this exploration becomes more clear and has become more clear for all of you as the retreat has gone on day by day. You know, here we are in this incredible temple, in this credible setting, supported by um, managers and cooks and housekeepers, lots of folks that you can't see in the background, the administration, um, the teachers, uh, the, the land itself. And as we sit, are we completely at peace? As we sit, do we have tranquility and freedom? 
And is the mind quiet and calm? And if it isn't, what's that about? Because all the conditions are here supporting you. And what it's about is that it's about our mind. It's the power of our mind that desires pleasant experiences and is aversive to unpleasant experiences. And it's constantly buffeted by these 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows that, that make up this life existence. And yet, the teachings are that it is precisely these 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows that create our ability to have a middle way. So Upeka, some of you live in Upeka, equanimity, as Joanne was saying last night, is translated as balance. And the description of it is, is that it, it is the resting of the mind before it falls into extremes. So really the resting of the mind before it falls and it hurts itself into these extremes of, of joy and sorrow. And you've, you've actually mentioned this in your interviews. Some of your comments are, you know, it's been up and down, but it's okay. And so you've been able to see the, the surges to the pleasant experiences and the unpleasant experiences. And, and yet, when you come and report, you're not caught in either the peak or the valley. Things are okay. Just to recognize that that report of okayness is a taste of equanimity because it's the, it's the spaciousness to include your, all your experiences. So it's one of the reasons why we give the teaching around Vedana, around pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is really how can we approach our experience and not be attached to the pleasant or aversive to the unpleasant, or indifferent or bored with the neutral, which is usually what happens. The Buddha said, where there is attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is not possible. So the freedom to do whatever we want to do, just because of pleasant or unpleasant experiences, that's not freedom. That's really what I was talking about earlier. That's addiction. That's addiction to our patterns of, of wanting more and more pleasant experiences and less and less unpleasant experiences. And then sometimes when we have aversive experiences of discomfort or pain, whether it's emotional or physical, and, and then as we, as we allow the awareness to simply follow it and the pain changes. It may even go away. And then when there's nothing there, we get bored. We want something to be there. We're total drama queens in terms of filling up time or filling up space 
without recognizing what's in front of us, this calmness, this serenity. We think that we need objects of our attention, that, that the object of our desire will, will um, make us happy. And really, our freedom is not dependent on the object. It's, our freedom is dependent on our experience, our relationship to our experience. So the characteristics of equanimity in relationship to experience are patience, which is one of the perfections, the paramis, acceptance, spaciousness, non-reactivity, non-attachment, letting go, and contentment. I actually think contentment is a very important experience to cultivate and to recognize in our, in our, um, in our life. The Buddha gave a specific teaching on contentment. It's called the Santitagatha, the instructions for the rich. You who want to escape from all various afflictions must contemplate what it means to know satisfaction. For people who do not know satisfaction, it does not suit their fancy, even if they are in heaven. People who do not know satisfaction are poor, even if they are rich. People who do know satisfaction are rich, even if they are poor. It means being content with where we are, who we are, and what we have. Joanne was talking about being grateful for what we have. Simply recognizing contentment and inclining the heart towards it. But our mind, based on our culture, based on our family, based on our, you know, uh, conditioning through generations is really inclined towards satiating desire. And we are unaware of the consequences of satiating desire. Because the consequence of satiating desire is that it's never satiated. All desire is the desire for no desire. Can you get that? All desire is the desire for no desire. No desire is that place of not needing anything. Taking a drug or getting high, you just want to be on that plateau. And that crashes. Whether it's addiction or just even simple hunger, You know, the desire for food, the, the people who are on eight precepts, is a real ex exploration into the practice of, of desire. And, and, you know, putting more food at lunch because, you know, you think you might need it, and then, and then halfway through the meal, finding out that you actually don't need it. Just mindfulness will tell us when 
when our levels of satisfaction are met. In this, in this way, all desire seeks its own destruction because it searches for contentment. But the, the thing about desire is, is that it has no wisdom. It cannot see the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering is desire and attachment. Only awareness cultivates the wisdom into the truth. And just as the mind has been conditioned to be unaware, to be deluded, it can be, and you are reconditioning your mind to see the truth more and more frequently, to become aware more and more frequently. So can we be, dis- can we be satisfied with both dissatisfaction and satisfaction. This is the practice of no preference. Non-reactivity to uh, one preference over another. So as we sit with discomfort, any of these places that irritate us is such an opportunity to practice this. So sitting with pain in the body. There was a, uh, one of the Burmese um, uh, me- meditation masters that I was studying with used to um, progressively take cushions out from underneath you so that eventually you would be sitting on the concrete in order to, you know, I mean, I'm not into that, but... <laughs> You notice. <laughs> but that was the intention around that particular practice. In, in Thailand, th- there's no such thing as a zabatan. There's a sitting cloth, a piece of cloth, and you sit on it. And the Dharma talks lasted for three hours. And they're in Thai. And guess what? I don't understand Thai. Sitting with a teacher you don't like, hearing a Dharma talk you don't like or disagree with, this is such a great practice because it's discomfort. It's such a worthwhile practice around, can you still have a practice when those particular conditions around you are unpleasant? The noise in the meditation hall, you know, people come and go, people have different needs. You know, you might have experienced some problems in your rooms or, or someone breaks silence or... Can you simply just be with that experience in, in a sense of spaciousness? in spite of all those conditions, is there still freedom? Or do you have some prerequisites? Are there conditions for you to experience that spaciousness or freedom? And who would you be without these prerequisites? 
because in reality there are none. You may notice that I'm a person of color and I'm a gay man. And to this day, I still don't necessarily see myself reflected nor hurt, hear my story in the meditation hall. And so when I started to practice, especially, there were absolutely no people of color events and there may have been one uh, LGBT event every long time, you know, every long period. And I wanted to change the room. I wanted the room to be more like me. I wanted to hear the stories that supported my life. And I had, you know, I would sit in the back of the room because I would not sit in the middle of the crowd, of course, because I didn't feel a part of. And I had these amazing plans and stories of, you know, busing people in from the Castro or Oakland or, you know, and changing the room or changing the system. What the practice offered me, despite our collective cultural unconsciousness that has created some of these circumstances, is the ability to sit anywhere with anyone under any circumstance. That was the freedom that I got. And a lot of these conditions are unfair. And is that a prerequisite to your freedom? Does life have to be fair in order for you to access freedom? Because the possibility of freedom is now. And it doesn't mean that you don't work towards better conditions. And we are beginning to see many more opportunities for people of color and, and LGBT folks. So the work has already started. But even that work is not dependent on your ability to access your freedom now. Equanimity provides the spaciousness to do this really demanding work. Otherwise, all of us would burn out. These 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows are like uh, one of the images that is offered is the waves in the ocean. You know, sometimes there are tidal waves in our lives. But the ocean is not the waves. It's something much larger holding it all. The Zen master Dogen uh, writes, a fish swims in the ocean and no matter how far it swims, there's no end to the water. A bird flies in the sky and no matter how far it flies, there's no end to the air. However, the fish and the bird have never left their elements. When their activity is large, their field is large. When their need is small, their field is small. Thus, each of them totally covers its full range and each of them 
totally experiences its own realm. Practice, enlightenment, and people are like this. Equanimity not only holds our pain, it also holds our joy. However, it holds our joy with the truth of impermanence so that we don't, um, uh, what was the term that Joanne used, around becoming overly exuberant because of the joy. It moderates it in, the, in, the, in a way that gives us a reality check of, of that it's balanced in our lives. So Stephen, my partner, and I um, went to his, his, his last name is Picard, so he comes from, uh, his, his, his ancestors come from France, and he had never been there. So we wanted to go to Paris, and there's this um, province, Picardy, uh, north of Paris, and that's where some of his, I think, relations are from. So we went to Paris for two weeks, and it was the most phenomenal vacation we've ever taken. It was glorious. I mean, people were friendly. Um, we felt really at ease and at home. And each day was more delicious you know, in terms of our intimacy, in terms of our ability to relax and not be pressured. And each day was closer to its ending. You know, we felt that, especially after the first week. And we looked at each other at one point in time and said, what are we going to do? <laughs> do we stop having a good time because we know it's going to end? It's this bitter sweetness that the pleasant experience brings us, that offers us, that life itself is bitterly sweet. This is equanimity, holding the both and. And you'll experience this as the retreat ends, if you hold the mindfulness there. There's a sweetness that we've all experienced, regardless of how painful it's been. And it will end. And so that in itself creates the conditions of the, this, this sweetness and also the sadness that some people have already started to talk about in your interviews. So it's not anything to push away. Just continue to taste it and taste the aftertaste. Equanimity is the capacity to be here with all the details of all your preferences and non-preferences. It's not intended to uh, dull or diminish or dampen. You don't, you, you don't become flat or boring. It's an inclusion of everything. And I just also want to emphasize that the practice of equanimity is not the practice of perfection. 
So often we just want to get there, you know, to this 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 state that we think is is going to be calm or or inclusive. It's balance. There's no such thing as balance. Balance is like riding a bicycle. So you learn, you get on a bicycle and you fall, and you get on a bicycle and you fall, and then you you know get on a bicycle and you wobble. And so even after 10 years of riding a bicycle, if you're really mindful of what's happening on the bicycle, you're still wobbling. You're always compensating for going in one direction or another. You're just more skillful at it. So the uh, near enemy of equanimity is indifference indifference or apathy. So there's this distance that, that has a cold temperature to it, a coldness. And there's one word in our language that uh, always expresses this indifference to me whenever I hear it. And I use it a lot. And it's whatever, <laughs> right? Whatever. It's a complete disengagement and not caring. We think when we're not, when we think when we're non-attached that we can't care. But in actuality, we deeply care to see the truth and the ability, as the serenity prayer says, to accept things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The far enemy is the reactivity of extremes. So it's the polarity, the good and the evil, the right, wrong, the critic saying, you know, bad, 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 bad meditator. (laughs) Never says good meditator. The other thing about equanimity that, that can be, um, it, it's somewhat, I think, of a myth, is, is that equanimity is not a passive experience. It doesn't mean that you're a doormat or that things are, you know, you just, things happen just because they do and you are fatalistic about it. So the Buddha, there's an example in, in the Buddha's life around this that he went to a house because he was invited for dana, which means that he was invited for a meal. And the meal was offered to him. But he, instead of getting the meal, he was bombarded with um, uh, uh, insults and um, uh, curses. And, and he was called a swine. And you know, his practice was called you know, stupid. And, but what is written is, is that he, it is said that he was not offended and did not retaliate. Calmly, he asked his host what he would do when his guests visited his house. So this person who was throwing all the curses at him said, well, uh, I would prepare a meal for them. And the Buddha said, and what if they did not eat the meal? 
the host replied, in that case, we ourselves would eat the meal. Well, good brother, replied the Buddha, you have invited me to your house for dana, but instead you have entertained me with a torrent of abuse. I do not eat nor accept your abuse. Please receive it back to yourself to feast upon. (laughs) So it's the spaciousness to know how to reply without anger, without, you know, not necessarily matching the abuse with abuse. The ability to set boundaries. So the phrases of um, equanimity, just like the phrases of compassion or joy or uh, metta, um, are, you are the heir of your own karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depend upon your actions and not my wishes. I'll give you some alternates. Your happiness and unhappiness depends upon your past, present, and future actions, not my wishes for you. I wish you well, but cannot make choices for your life. I care about you and will support you in your life and cannot control the outcome. And lastly, things are just as they are. This moment is just as it is. The formal practice, just to close this this piece, is that we start with a neutral person. We start with a person that we don't have any attachment nor aversion to. And then we move to benefactor, self, um, difficult person in all beings. The relationship of these four Brahma-viharas is that, and they are all tied together because as Joanne was saying, it's all the natural expression of our heart. So metta and compassion really guard equanimity from falling into its near enemy, which is indifference. It's the love that will, that will soften this indifference. Equanimity is the insight and the wisdom that restrains the other three. The other three can uh, go into over-exuberance. So they say that that you know our practice is, is is guided on the wings of wisdom and compassion. That if that if it was only compassion, we can get lost in the suffering. And just being in the wisdom, uh, wisdom we know, the truth we know, can often be painful. So equanimity is the wisdom factor that that balances the other three. It guards love and compassion from going astray into unconscious emotional reactivity. So again, I said before that the practice of equanimity is not the practice of being perfect. 
And it's also not the practice of having no suffering. So this um, New Year's, uh, Stephen and I, we had taken my parents for their 60th anniversary on a cruise, and we had a fabulous time. Uh, this was about five years ago. So we decided to go on a cruise ourselves. And um, so we went on a cruise from San Diego down to Puerto Vallarta. And um, the weather actually was fabulous. And we got on board and um, we decided not to do the, the gay cruise. Um, the timing wasn't right. And um, he teaches and we had one sort of slot of vacation open. Um, so we went on, on um, this cruise line that we had gone on with my parents and had a great time. And it was one of the most homophobic experiences we've ever had. It was, uh, it got actually progressively scary because um, there was a, you know, there were the passengers who, um, there was an incident between a passenger and Stephen and, and, you know, he was called the F word and, and uh, so then we reported it to the, the, uh, the purser's office and, and didn't really get that much of a response. And the response that we got is that there was a, a gay support um, meeting. Uh, and so we went to it and the room was locked. <laughs> so this was another you know, red flag for us. Um, and then there was uh, uh, the situation in which we were eating at our dining table and you know, you're assigned a dining table and it was clear that the people at the dining table did not want us there. So this is, you know, this is beginning to get really uncomfortable. Then because uh, Stephen had been on this cruise line before, both of us had, he received an invitation um, to go to one of these receptions uh, and he received the invitation. So he called the purser's office and said, can I bring my partner? Oh no, this is you know, an exclusive event. You can't bring guests of any kind. And so I asked him, you know, I think you should call back and ask them if you can bring your wife. <laughs> and sure enough, he, was, you know, he said, oh, of course you can bring your wife. Well, he actually didn't go because why, he said, why would I want to go, you know, under those conditions? It really, it really made the experience, um, because we map on our, our own stuff, right? So I already know that, 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 you know, in the last eight years, 28 people have fallen overboard um, of cruise ships and not been found. And so this, this mapping of, of fear and um, uh, discomfort began to elevate my own sense of safety. Because Stephen ran, and he, run, he ran on the top deck. And so every time he would go on the running deck, 
my fear level would go up around, you know, someone pushing him overboard or And then, you know, the, um, uh, well, uh, anyway, there were more. There were, it escalated. And then, so we finally reached Puerto Vallarta. And there's actually a very large gay lesbian population in Puerto Vallarta. So that's exactly where we went. So we went off the ship and we were at a gay bar and we were watching a drag show. And, um, and, and this was over New Year's, so the whole ship had been partying, and, and so we went to this, this, the, the gay section of Vallarta, and we were having a good time. And then there was this experience that I had of realizing that the, these two groups, the one on the ship and the one on the land, were doing the exact same thing. They were having a good time. They were trying to enjoy themselves. We just couldn't do it together. And that sense of connection with them made it easier. That sense of similarity, even though the conditions were still painful. So equanimity is not about excising the pain. It's really how did, is it all included in the experience? And it allowed me to, when we got back onto land, it allowed me to approach the, um, the organization, you know, in ways, to, in, in, in ways to advocate for what we were experiencing. And actually, we actually got part of our, our trip refunded. But it was only because I could describe it in a way that could be heard, which I'm not sure that I could do um, if I was enraged. Then there's the other aspect of spaciousness that, that I alluded to in the Donna talk. That this is not just our practice. It's not just your practice. It's not about your enlightenment or awakening. It's because it's not about personal salvation. We are creating the conditions for freedom, not just for us, but for our community and for all beings and all beings yet to be. In a very real sense, we are the ancestors of those who are yet to come. All cultures teach us this. We are elders regardless of how old we are. And we are creating the conditions for freedom for future generations of queer people, for future generations of all people. 
we are supported by the lineage of this practice. And the practice will depend upon us. This is the magnitude and the spaciousness of our practice. This is our, the collective experience, the embodiment of what we're doing here. Anna Julia Cooper, who is one of the most important African-American educators. She was born a slave and lived to 104. She um, was one of, she got her uh, doctorate from the Saban, says, the cause of freedom is not the cause of a race or a sect or a party or a class. It is the cause of humankind, the very birthright of humanity. This is the great journey of our birthright. This is the spaciousness of our practice. And the Buddha said he would not teach something that we could not do. So one last story. So uh, I've been thinking about this because it's almost exactly a year ago that I disrobed. And um, when I went, first went over to Thailand, I, went, I, I ended up in Chiang Mai and, and I gave myself about a week before I went into the temple. So, you know, the first thing you do in Chiang Mai is go to the night market. And then um, the next day I did a yoga class. And the next day, you know, I kept thinking about the things that I wanted to do before I went in. So I went to Starbucks. <laughs> You know, it's like, you know, one, two more days of freedom left. And, and then I was sitting with a butterscotch sundae at uh, Arts Cafe, which is the Western place to get food. And I was thinking to myself, am I going towards freedom or away from it? <laughs> so, so I had the experience that some of you have heard some of the stories are. And so I, I came out and I... I came out in Chiang Mai too, and then, so I reversed myself, you know, I did the yoga class again, and I did the, um, and I came home, and there was some idealization or projection that, that, that was going on in my home, and uh, so Stephen thought that I was, you know, this glowing, <laughs> calm, tranquil being, and, um, and uh, and so Jack Cornfield called and to check in on me and and I wasn't home so Stephen talked to him and said you know he's so you know amazing and enlightened and <laughs> I can't you know I can't you know I can't match you know his his tranquility and there was a pause and Jack said wait a few days <laughs> just wait a few days and sure enough. You know, very quickly my schedule got busier than it ever did. I got stressed out. I got angry. I gained 15 pounds. <laughs> and this wonderful, blessed life continued in spite of all of that, with the innumerable waves going up and down in this ocean of our experience.
This talk was given by Larry Yang at Insight Meditation Society on April 6, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Arc. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.